We are continuing our series called The Path of the Exile around here. And uh, for those of you guys who are just joining us, we are going through the book of 1 Peter and walking through it verse by verse or really passage by passage and just extracting a lot of truth from God's word that we're applying to our lives. And we made it all the way to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. So if you have the Bi- a Bible with you or a phone or whatever you use to, to follow along, we've got it on the screen. Here it is. It says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. All of these qualities, I guess you could say, really embody what it, what it is to walk in relationship with other people. Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, humble mind, all of these things have to do with relationships and friendships and walking in community with other people. Have you ever wondered, or maybe you've ever asked this question, uh, or maybe just wished in your heart, like, I wish I had closer friendships. Has anybody ever had that thought before? I mean, like you look around at your life and it's like, I've got a lot of casual friendships. I have a lot of acquaintances, but I wish I had some friendships that were deeper friendships. I mean, we are, if you're following Jesus, you are in the, the, the company of those who the Bible says we ought to be known by our love one for another. And sometimes uh, as believers, I think some of us secretly wonder and wish, like, why don't we see some of that deeper connection? And, you know, we have all those. I heard somebody talk about it this way, that it seems like a lot of people, what they think are close friendships or close relationships turn out just to be a case of intersecting schedules. It's just that we happen to be at the same place at the same time. And for those of us who are believers, we happen to be at church at the same time or in real life group at the same time. And then when we stop going to those things or our schedules stop intersecting, it seems like what we thought was a deep relationship isn't there. Have you guys have ever experienced that before? If you're like me, you've experienced that before. And, and have you ever had that longing on the inside? Like, I wish that I had deeper relationships or deeper friendships. Well, I was reading this week and uh, there's something, some of you guys have maybe heard of this before, it's called the Dunbar number. And this is uh, someone who did a bunch of research and on the size of the human brain, I didn't get too far into it, guys. I just was looking at that, as I thought it was fascinating. They came up with this number, uh, and what the number is, is it's the highest number of stable relationships a person can sustain at any time. And this is a number that they came up with looking through all of, like even looking at tribes throughout history and all sorts of things. And here it is. They, they came up with this number that you can have up to 150 casual friends, 50 close friends, 15 confidants, and five intimate friends. You can't really get beyond that. So you know, 150 casual friends. Now, of course, now we have like all of these social media things. So we've got like a thousand friends. We don't even know who they are. But the truth is you can have 150 casual friends, 50 close friends, 15 people that you might go to in your life if you have a problem and you need to confide something into them or to, to, uh, to, to have a, a deep, deep, deep conversation. And then five intimate friends. Now, the, there's two things about this. Well, First of all, uh, your intimate friends are going to be more like, I mean, people who are really close, like family. So for me, I have five kids and a wife. My five slots are overtaken right now with that. And so there's two things you got to understand about this. The first thing is that 
if, you, if this is true, if all you can really have is 150, 50, 15, and five, you better choose those very carefully because that's all you've got. And if these people are closest to you, affect you and influence you the most, then you really ought to choose those carefully and not be casual about who is in those circles. And the second thing is this. If you have good people or want good people in those circles in your life, then we better learn how to tend to those relationships well. Because if we do not, then people may move out of those circles very, very quickly. And what we desire to have closer relationships, more intimate relationships, because we don't know how to tend to them well, we end up kicking people further out of the circle because we just don't know how to tend to those well. We want unity of mind, we want a humble heart, we want all of those things, but we have to learn how to do that. First Peter chapter three, verse nine, begins to tell us part of the process. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. What, what is he talking about here? Well, I could sum this up in one word. And you may have a different word or come up with a different conclusion, but for me, as we walk through this passage of Scripture, I'm going to sum this idea up in one word, and it's the word called forgiveness. We better learn how to forgive one another. And when someone does us wrong, instead of repaying them evil, we bless them. That's what forgiveness is. And so if we really have a desire, and some of us are looking at that list and we're like, I don't have 50 close friends. I mean, I don't have 50 close friends. I don't have, I don't have 15 people I could go to and confide in. I don't even know if I have five intimate friends. I'm really blessed as a, a, a husband and father that, that my kids... For one, they, they will open up to me. They will share things with me. We'll talk about spiritual things. I'm really blessed in that area. And so, but some of us don't have that. And so we're looking at that saying, well, I don't have those things. How, why is that? And let me just give you a reason why. And, and we've already mentioned the word, but let me tell you why. You can function in a business without forgiving. And you can, be, you can function in a business. It may be frustrating, but you can do it. You can function in school and you can make good grades without forgiving other people. You can for sure function in politics without forgiving other people. But you cannot function in relationships without learning how to forgive well. And that, this is one of the, the secrets. So continuing on in verse 10, it says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days. Have we got anybody here who would love to love life and see good days? All right, a few people here this morning. All right, I would too. All right, here's what happens. It says, Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil. Like when someone does evil to you, turn away from that and do good. Let him seek peace. Let him pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I could sum it up by saying this. The good life that he's talking about here is the forgiven life and the forgiving life. That's what he's saying. He's saying if you want to love life. Because how many of you guys have been there before where you've been offended and you've, been, you've walked in unforgiveness? It's not love and life, is it? It's frustrating in that circumstance. But if you want to love life and you want to have a good life, it's, the forgive, it's when you understand that you've been forgiven by Jesus. 
It's when you understand how to forgive those people in those circles closest to you. It says, you know, everything's not going to be perfect, but you're going to have a good life and you're going to love it. It's going to be amazing because we're so tied into relationships. And so what I want to do today is I want to talk about the purpose of forgiveness. I want to talk about the process of forgiveness. And then I want to talk about the price of forgiveness. See, Jesus tells a story, one of his parables, and it's about a man who owed a lot of money to a very powerful person. But this powerful person decided to uh, forgive them of that and to forgive them of this big, huge debt. But then this, this guy turned around and he went and he was owed just a small debt. And instead of forgiving the small debt, he went and he went and grabbed the guy by the throat. And he said, no, pay me everything that I'm due. And, and in this moment, this guy was turned over into the, uh, to the tormentors, the Bible says. We're going to turn you over to the tormentors. And, and so what, what's the mini message Jesus is preaching? He's preaching this. He's preaching a little mini message that says this. Unforgiveness torments, but forgiveness is freedom. Can I just sum up the message today? Unforgiveness torments, but forgiveness is freedom. And so many of us are bound up on the inside. Do you know that an inner prison is much more damaging than an external prison? What am I saying? You could live in prison externally, but what's worse than that is living in a prison internally. Years ago, there was a tragedy in Oslo, and this guy went on a rampage, and some of you guys will remember this. He killed 77 people. They, they put him in prison, and uh, something interesting began to happen. The, the Norwegian um, authorities, and as he was in prison, he was in isolation and, and uh, solitary confinement. They, they started to consider hiring people to come in to this killer, this mass killer, to socialize with him, to play games with him, to play sports with him, hiring people to do this, to play chess with him, to interact with him, and to basically be buddies with the guy. You're like, why would they do that? Because Norwegian law uh, forbids keeping prisoners in total isolation for long periods of time because they believe that it's considered unduly cruel punishment. And they, they are right about that, that isolation is one of the worst punishments you could ever endure. And so many of us, because of unforgiveness, we are enduring an inner prison of isolation and it's tormenting us. Jesus said that's how it works. But forgiveness is living free and giving freedom to other people. It's a wonderful way to live life. There was another tragedy in 2015. Some of you guys will remember this. I believe it was in South Carolina. In South Carolina, there was a a 21-year-old white supremacist who walked into an African-American church into a prayer meeting on a Wednesday night. There were 13 people in the prayer meeting. He sat through the whole prayer meeting, and then at the very end, he got up and said, I'll give you something to pray about, and shot and killed nine of the people. Right there, after he'd listened to them pray. Two days later, they're in, in court, and he's the, 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 the killer is by video, and all of the representatives of the family members who were lost came, and they stood up, and one by one, they forgave him. How do you guys know that's crazy? Right? That's just, that's unimaginable. Like how, why would they do that? One person said this. They said, I will never be able to hold her again, talking about her lost loved one. I will never be able to hold her again, but I forgive you. If God forgives you, I forgive you. 
what was going on there? They, they weren't granting him freedom from prison by forgiving him. What were they doing? They were granting themselves freedom from an inner prison. They understood this, that I can choose to forgive and be free, or I can choose to hold unforgiveness and be bound just like this man is in prison for the rest of my life. And an inner prison is way worse than an external prison. And so the, it, you, you can't control what happens, what other people do to you, but you can control what you become in spite of it. That's what the scriptures teach us. A good life is the forgiven life and the forgiving life. Now, Satan would love his whole plan. He would love to have every single person here bound up in an inner prison fighting with one another. That was, I mean, he could, he could stop the kingdom of God advancing by getting everyone to fight with one another in this room. He could stop by getting all the churches. And believe me, how many of you guys know he's pretty successful at it, isn't he? How many of us have been halted in our tracks because of unforgiveness? How many of us have stopped the plan of God in our life because we're bound in unforgiveness? How many of us have isolated other people in our lives because of unforgiveness? How many of you guys have been here and we've been emotionally drained because we're using emotional energy and emotional, all these things because we're trapped and Satan's plan has been working, and some people might call it the bait of Satan. In fact, I read a book by a guy named John Bevere that was the best book I read on this topic called The Bait of Satan, and I'm gonna let him explain what that is. Let's watch. Hi, I'm John Bevere, author of The Bait of Satan. Now, you may be thinking, what would be the bait of Satan? Well, it's one word. It's called being offended. You know, Jesus made this statement, remarkable statement, Luke 17, verse one. He said, it is impossible that offenses should not come. What Jesus is basically saying there is if you breathe air, you drink water, you are going to have the opportunity to be offended. But what you do with that offense determines your future. Either you're gonna become stronger or you're gonna become bitter. Now, the Greek word there in Luke 17, one for offense is actually an ancient Greek word that was originally used to describe the bait stick of a trap that hunters would use to catch small animals and birds in. The word is actually a scandalon. And what the hunters would do is they would put the bait on the scandalon and the animal would take it and the trap would either close and kill the animal or capture it. Thereby, an offense is the bait of Satan to pull a person into his captivity. You know, Paul the Apostle confirmed this by saying in 2 Timothy chapter 2 that those who are in opposition with one another, they're offended with one another, they're taken captive of Satan to do Satan's will. That's pretty scary. You know that you may think you're serving God, you may think you're helping people, but in, re in reality, you're releasing waters tainted with bitterness rather than rivers of living water. I have preached this message all over the world. I've preached it in conferences with tens of thousands of people in the attendance. I've preached it in large churches and small churches. Every place that I have proclaimed this message all over the globe, I have seen at least 50% of the people responding saying that I am offended. And most of them didn't realize it until the message exposed it. You know, Jesus said about the second coming, the last days, he said, in the season before I return, offense is gonna run rampant in the church. It's gonna lead to betrayals and it's gonna lead to even hatred. And he said, because of it, deception's gonna be rampant. So that tells me that an offense is the breeding ground for deception. 
And he said, as a result of this, the love of many is going to go cold. You know, that word love he uses isn't love in general. It's the love that people get when they become a Christian. Jesus is saying a lot of people, the love, the fire of God in their heart is going to grow cold because of coming into that trap. I believe this book is going to help many, many more. It's already helped over a million people, but it's going to help many, many more people get out of this deadly trap and be productive and fulfill what they are placed on this earth to do. All right, so I read that book, and it really helped me recenter my perspective on how to do this. Now, I, I, have, I have this book. Who wants this book? Who, who's the most offended person in this room that needs this book? <laughs> okay, no, who just really wants this book? Okay, so we got, all right, right over here, right over here. I'm going to toss it to you. Woo, good catch. Boy, that's a bad throw. I was, it was left-handed, and I don't play baseball. You guys know that. So, um, but th- this was one of the best books that I've ever read on how to walk out in forgiving other people and how to live free and to live, from, live free from that. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 and through 16 says this. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? In other words, if you do the right thing, no matter what happens your way, you're going to come out on top in the end. And not, not because you're not suffering for it, as we'll see after a while, but because you are doing the right thing. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ. It's saying no matter what's happening to you, Honor Jesus, honor Christ, honor the way of God, the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for this hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, because you're probably going to get get slandered, okay? (laughs) If you're walking around other people, it's going to happen, so that when you are slandered, those those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. What is he saying here? He's saying that if you do things God's way, your conscience is going to be clear. And I've, I've seen a lot of believers, this is one of the things where we get wrong. We do a lot of things right, but I, I've seen a lot of people do this wrong. And so what I want to do is I want to talk about what is the process of forgiveness. Now, before we get into this, I want to be clear. This is not for, what I'm about ready to talk about here is not for every single case. It's not for cases of abuse or extreme cases where your safety is an issue. I'm talking about the everyday issues of life where someone has offended you, which every single person has these opportunities. What do you do as a believer when this happens, okay? There's a process that Jesus laid out. But shockingly, most believers I've encountered do not follow this process. Jesus told us exactly how to do it, but most people do not follow it. I believe it can be different here at Journey Church. I believe we can can get on the right track with this. And so it's found in Matthew chapter 18. If you go to Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15, here it is. It says, if another believer sins against you, first of all, I want you to understand, it's a believer, okay? Not just the word, well, I'm offended by everybody. Okay, well, you got a problem, okay? (laughs) He's talking about if another believer, this is how it happens, all right? If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. 
So let me just tell you six assumptions, and I preached on this before, but six assumptions this passage is making. If you are offended and you want to deal with offense in the right way and to walk free and live the good life, before you do that, here are six assumptions this passage is making. And I preach fast. I'll try to slow down because I've got, I've got a lot to say. Try to slow down so you can get these six. Number one, the first assumption this passage is making is this. That when, you're, when you have an offense, the first course of action to deal with an offense is to talk to that person directly. Not everybody else. <laughs> not social media. That person directly. And privately. And this is where I'm shocked that most believers do not do this. Most believers don't do this. First of all, we won't go to them first. We won't go to them directly. We won't go to them privately, and we won't go to them only. I can tell you a lot of times, it, just in my family, where we have set the culture, my kids may come to me and they have an issue. I'm saying, and I'll say this, and I'm famous for this. Probably they'll probably tell you it. I'm, I'm famous for saying, you're talking to the wrong person. You need to go talk to them. You're talking, I've, I've said that to our team before and to different people that as I'm counseling people, it's like, well, you're talking to the wrong person. I don't know why you're talking to me. Why don't you go talk to them? Well, I'd like to go, I'd like to bring a whole group to talk. No, the Bible says, talk to them privately first. And, and so I've heard my kids even say that, like they, they, they talk amongst themselves and they're like, I've heard them say, well, you're talking to the wrong person because <laughs> it's a culture that gets set. So that's the first assumption, that you go directly to the person before you do anything else. If you haven't gone to them privately, then you haven't taken step one. Don't skip over the next steps, okay? Number one, go to them personally, privately. Number two, the second assumption is this. It assumes that if you, have, if, if you feel like you've been offended, it assumes that you are on the right side of the issue, how many of you guys have ever been offended by something and then you found out, oops, I was on the wrong side of that issue, right? Yeah. So this is assuming that you're actually right, which is iffy, okay? <laughs> there have been a lot of times in my life I thought I was right and then I'm like, oops, okay, that was a, yeah, that was a problem. Assumes that you're on the right side of the issue and that you have genuinely been wronged. What am I saying here? That there's an actual sin that someone can repent of. Not just your preference, not just your issue, not just uh, whatever, but there's, when you go to somebody that there's a real sin that that person can repent of. Not just complaining to them, but there's a real sin there. Okay, that's what it's talking, it says to repent. Okay, that means there has to be a sin involved. So many people get offended and then there's not even a sin involved. And so he says, that's the second assumption. Number three. That, and I know we're getting into the deep weeds here, guys, okay? So I don't, that, this is what First Peter talks about, so I'm just going there, okay? It, number three, that two or three other mature, solid believers, not your gossip buddies, mature, solid believers would see, that, would see clearly that you have been wronged. They, they would see clearly that there is a sin that's been committed and that they, so clearly that they're willing to put their reputation on the line and go with you to that person, okay? Do you see the weight of this, guys? Are you guys, I'm just trying to help you understand the weight of this. It would see clearly that they, and go with you to settle it together. Four, the fourth assumption is this, that the leadership of the church would, would also clearly see that a wrong has been committed and needs to be repented of, 
And it's a big enough issue, and this is big, that whatever it is, is a big enough issue for the leadership of the church to tackle. Saying that other issues, you ought to just be able to walk in forgiveness even if they don't repent. Just walk in forgiveness. Just move on. But that the leadership of the church would, would be big enough to tackle this direction, with direction and correction. Number five, and this is a big one, guys. This is, the, this is one of the biggest, okay? That it's a, making this assumption that you are going to them for the purpose of winning them and reconciliation, not condemnation. That you're not going to them to just point out, listen, I'm hurt, you're wrong. I want you to know that. That you're going to them for the purpose. Let me, let me say it this way. When you go to into this process, you can only go into this process when you have pre-decided to forgive them no matter what happens after. You pre-decide no matter what response, if they tell me off, if they say I'm wrong, I have already pre-decided to forgive. I'm simply going into this process in hopes for repentance, but no matter what, I'm coming out with reconciliation and freedom in my heart towards this situation. Okay, And so number six, and this is also a big one, number six assumption is this. If you're on the other side of this equation, which I have been many times, <laughs> and if you're on the other side of the equation, it assumes this, real believers repent when they're wrong. Here's the good news about walking with Jesus. You don't have to be perfect. He's perfect. But what we do have to do is repent when we were wrong. And so when somebody comes to you in this process, you come to them with a humble heart and you say, you know, maybe there's something I can't see or maybe, there's, maybe I have a, a blind spot, but I want to repent. And so you repent when you're wrong. And again, we should have already pre-decided before we go. All right, that's step one. Go to them. <laughs> step two is this. Pray for them. You say, I don't know if I can pray for them. They've hurt me so badly. Pray for them. Well, the scripture says this, Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. But I say to you, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Can I just start off by telling you that your brothers and sisters in Christ are not even your enemies? This scripture really doesn't even apply to them. But it for sure at least applies to them. But I can tell you the people in this room are not your enemies. These are your brothers and sisters in Christ. But Jesus said, for those that you do consider even enemies that are, that are outside, that whatever you consider an enemy, you even pray for those people. Pray for those people. But this, this assumption is that you pray for them like you would pray for yourself. Not praying for them like, well, God, you know how bad they are. I mean, you made them. You know how bad they are. You know how horrible they are. You know every part of them. You know? No, you pray for them like you would your own children. Because they're a brother and sister in Christ. That's hard to do, guys. That's really hard to do, isn't it? But it's the Jesus way. It's the Jesus way. Romans chapter 12, verse 18 says, do all that you can to live at peace with everyone. It's saying this, sometimes you're gonna do all that you can to live at peace, but sometimes other people aren't gonna walk in that and they're gonna choose to walk the other way. But as, as much as it depends on you, live at peace. I, I release you. I release freedom in my heart and I give freedom to you. That's what it's saying, okay? And it goes on, it says, dear friends, never take revenge Leave that to the righteous anger of God for the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. What is it? What's the truth here? Forgiveness is giving up your right for revenge. 
Because you may have a real right to take revenge in the natural, but not the Jesus way. And, and forgiveness is giving up your right for revenge even in your thought life. Like I give up my right to take revenge on them even in my thoughts towards them. That's called living free on the inside. If any part of your success in life is tied to them being a failure in some way, you are still tied to the tormentor. It's like, well, though, look, they failed, so that just proves how right I am. No, if any part is tied to their failure, then, then you are still tormented on the inside. And Satan has taken up real estate in your heart. He's taken up real estate in your life, okay? All right, so then the third part is this. So, so go to them, pray for them, release them. As I said, predecide before you go to forgive. Forgiveness is about reclaiming lost territory in your mind. You say, well, I'm not tied to the tormentor. I've forgiven them. Well, let me ask you this question. How many arguments are you still having with them in your own mind? <laughs> have you guys have been there before? Boy, I've been there a lot. You know that you're still tied when you're still having arguments in your mind. Well, I'm gonna say this and they're gonna say that and I'm gonna say this and they're gonna say that. And you always win in your mind, right? You always win in your mind. That's why, it's, that's why we love to do it, you know? The sin is not the thought. The sin is the replaying of the thought, okay? That's, that's, the Bible says take every thought captive. So, so again, we go with this idea of reconciling. Now, again, John Bevere talks about this. I'm gonna let him wrap this up with another clip. Let's watch. Now, you know when Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, go to him? Mm -hmm. Okay, this is the way we take that scripture. James, I just want you to know you did this and this and this, but I forgive you. <laughs> that's the way we take that scripture. And, uh, that's right. and, and that's not what Jesus meant. Jesus is saying, if your brother has hurt you, go to him to create an atmosphere of reconciliation. See, this is what a lot of Christians don't understand. I hope everybody in here can hear this. There's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. And we've lumped the two together. Okay, how do you understand the difference? Look at the cross. When did Jesus forgive us? When he hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're yeah, doing. Before we ever mass for it. Right. Because he, he, was he wasn't just talking to the soldiers in the Sanhedrin, he was talking to the next generation, right down to you and me, because our sins put him on that cross. That's right. So he forgave us before we ever said, I'm sorry. Do you know how many Christians have looked at me since I've written that book and said, I'll forgive them when they apologize? I'm like, what if Jesus would have waited for you to apologize before he forgave you? Where would we be? And so, but we weren't reconciled back to him until we repented. And you know what repentance is? I'm sorry, you're right, I'm wrong, forgive me. What caused us to repent? The goodness of God. Right? Didn't his son shine on us when we weren't saved? Didn't he give us clean water before we were saved? So what Jesus is saying is go to that man and create an atmosphere that's going to want to make him say, I'm sorry. But when you go, you did this and this and this and this, but I forgive you. Well, he goes, excuse me. Anybody can do that. A Christian, a believer is like, I'm here because I want this reconciliation. And you, do you realize that most of the time, you don't even have to go through the process of walking through the process of forgiveness. You can simply forgive. Because the, the one of the worst things to do is to go to somebody who doesn't even know they've offended you, and you've already worked it out in your mind to predecide to forgive, and there's nothing really that needs to be worked out, but then you just go and say, hey, you know what, you didn't know this, but you really hurt me, but I forgave you. Now the person's like, what? Now I'm offended, you know? Like, I didn't even know, you know? And so now... 
But sometimes you can just walk in forgiveness. Isn't that such a great thing to be, power, to be empowered by God just to walk in forgiveness? Just to walk in, it's such a great thing. Uh, let me wrap up with this story. I heard a story this week of this millionaire investor guy who they called him like the prophet in pinstripes or something because he seemed to just predict every single you know, turn of the market and all this type of stuff. And he made millions, millionaires into more million, into multimillionaires. And it was just on and on and on. And, and so he had this whole group of people that you know, they believed that if they made more money, it, they would have more success. They could buy the things that they wanted. They would have more happiness and all of these things. But he started to look around after years of making millionaires into multimillionaires. And, and he saw this, this you know disproportionate effect of the multimillionaires starting to become more sad, more depressed. There was more suicide percentage-wise. There was more depression, all of these things. And so he's like, what's the deal? He's like, we were promised, I mean, they're kind of a loose promise that if we had more stuff, that our dreams would come true, if we could get freedom to, to have as much as we wanted, that we would somehow be more happy. And, and he found out that that was not happening with a lot of people. And so he decided to, uh, to do a study, and he put about a million dollars towards this study, a study of happiness. And he started to, and they did this whole study. I don't know how they did, did it, but the, the thing that stuck out to me was the summary of the study was this. They, they came up, however they came up with it, that happiness is found in three containers. In the first container, about 50% of happiness, according to them, according to this study, is already set, basically. In other words, your personality is just kind of predisposed to being a happy person. It's maybe just kind of who you are. It doesn't mean that other things couldn't affect that or tragedies or different things like that. It just means left alone, you would probably be more happy than not. You would just, you're just kind of, a, because it's preset. It's just kind of just the way you, you're wired is just to be more happy. But another 40% was based on intentional practices, things that we do that, that create happiness, however they decided to measure that. But the interesting thing to me was not the 40% or the 50%. The interesting thing to me was the 10% that they concluded. The 10%, the little, imagine the container, 50, 40, and then 10% of what they attributed to people's happiness was found in their circumstances. And they came to the conclusion that most people are spending 90 to 100% of their time, energy, effort, and resources trying to change their circumstances, expecting that if your circumstances could change, you'd be happier. When it turns out, according to this study, that's not even close. That's only 10%. That you could change your circumstances totally and it only give you a 10% chance or affect 10% of your happiness. And yet most of us are putting our effort, energy, time that, well, I'm hurt or I'm frustrated or I'm depressed in life because of my circumstance. I'm not where I want to be. I'm, they're not, I, I don't have the relationship. All these things. When it turns out the 10%, even if your circumstances change, there's still 90% of this weight. And it turns out that, that the most important thing we could do is to put our time and effort into these intentional practices, what the scripture would say is things like forgiveness, things that deal with relational things, things that we choose to do 
that actually create that. Now, again, we're, we're not the type of people that rise and fall on happiness. I just found that very interesting. That even, even the secular world is finding out that it's not based on your circumstances, but it's based on what you choose to do. And how many of you guys know in Jesus Christ, guess what? We don't just have to walk in our own strength. We get to walk in his strength when we choose these things. You say, well, I can't forgive because of this. Well, guess what? You don't have to walk in your own forgiveness. You can walk in the forgiveness that he has. And that's where I want to talk and, and wrap up with the price of forgiveness. I'm going to have the worship team come up at this time. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17 says this, For it is better to suffer for doing good. So there is a price when you do good. There's a price even when you're doing the right thing. If that should be God's will, then for doing evil. You know, throughout history, every tribe, every culture, every nation, every people group has found some way to punish evil or to punish wrong. So whether some people, they pay a fine, some people go to jail, some people pay, you know, even the death penalty, every tribe, culture, whatever, has a price to pay for doing wrong. There's a price for sin, we could say. But there's also a price for forgiveness. You guys know that forgiveness is not free. Somebody's gonna pay a price. In other words, when a wrong has been committed, somebody will pay a price. Either the offender will pay a price, or the person who is releasing the offender will pay a price for that freedom. Is everybody following me? A price will be paid when sin is committed. The question is, who's going to pay the price? When you have been offended and you choose to forgive, you are voluntarily saying, I will pay the price. Now, what's the price? Sometimes the price is giving up your right for revenge. Sometimes the price is, giving, is, is the pain that you've had and you are willing to let that pain go. There's a price to be paid to forgive. Sometimes it's, it's the price of, of, of just letting a wrong go unpunished and what may seem unfair, but you want to walk the Jesus way anyway. There's a pain involved in that. What I'm, what I'm saying is this. If you want to walk in forgiveness, to forgive like Jesus means that the people around you, that you bring the balance against them in your ledger of their wrongs, you bring it down to zero legitimately in, their heart, in your heart towards them. In other words, let me just put it this way. We've got a lot of Dave Ramsey people around here who've been through that. There ought to be everybody in your life. If you say, I'm a, I'm a forgiven person and I'm a forgiving person, there ought to be everybody around you in your life who ought to legitimately be able to scream the Dave Ramsey, I'm debt free towards you and say, I'm debt free. And that they can really say that in their heart. Because the, forgi the good life is the forgiven life and the forgiving life. Let me just close up with this. I'm gonna have you guys bow your heads and close your eyes just right there where you're sitting right now. Could you ask yourself this question? Am I offended? Am I walking in unforgiveness? There may be faces or names that flash across your mind right now. The second question is this, am I willing to release? Am I willing to pay the price to walk out forgiveness? You may not feel like it. It may hurt to do it. But you can reclaim lost territory in your life right now. Instead of living your life in the 10% consumed with your circumstances, consumed with the wrongs. 
Your life has been zeroed down to that little tiny piece of real estate where you live in a fence. Today, God wants to open up your horizons. He wants to open up the gate and let you see the land that you could be walking in. He has whole new territories to explore in Him and in your calling and in your relationships. But we're stuck in the 10%. The question is, do I want to be free? Am I willing to give forgiveness? And let me just encourage you as those names and faces flash across your mind, we can because of what Jesus has done for us. The Bible says that we've been forgiven much so we can forgive much. We can love much. And I think it's because many times we forget how Jesus works with us. Jesus doesn't make us pay for our sins. He paid for our sins. But so many times we turn around and we try to be like that, that, that person that Jesus told the story about when we've been forgiven of so much and instead of us paying for our sins, Jesus paid for it, we turn around and we try to make others pay for their sins. One of the biggest tricks of the enemy, and I'm talking to, to people right now who, who maybe haven't been following Jesus, but one of the biggest tricks of the devil is this, to try to get you to pay for your own sins. Because as you try, you realize you can't. Then you get frustrated and you never come to the loving arms of God. But the truth is this, let me just dispel the lie. The truth is this, you can never pay for your sins. Jesus paid for all of your sins on the cross. He did no wrong. We were the offender, but Jesus paid the price for forgiveness to happen. And he said, I will take the pain. And he took the pain on the cross and he took their sin on the cross. He took our offense on the cross and he laid it to rest. And he rose from the dead, resurrected from the dead to paint a picture, a real life picture that you and I can walk in a brand new life. And let me just say, those of you guys who are offended and want to give freedom, there can be a brand new life. There can be brand new relationships. There can be brand new, all of that because of what Jesus has modeled for us. But specifically to those of you here today who say, Pastor Sean, I'm not following Jesus, but I want to receive his forgiveness today. I can't pay for my own sins, but I want to walk in that new life with Jesus. I want the old to be gone. I want today to be a brand new start. I want to surrender my life to him. I want to repent of my old ways and I want to turn to Jesus. I just need to know if we need to take a moment out of this service to pray for you. You say, Pastor Sean, that's me. I need to start following Jesus. I haven't been, but I need to start now. I need to receive his grace and surrender my life to him. Would you just take a moment right now and just, right now, just lift up your hand all over the building so I can see it real quick. All right, thank you. Just hold it up high if you would. Just keep it up, okay? Keep it up. Reach up to God. Reach up to God. All right, anybody, one more moment for you. If, you, if you're here and you just, you just feel like that God is stirring your heart right now, don't miss out on this moment. Beautiful, all right. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna lead us all in a prayer. We're just gonna talk to Jesus. Could you all pray with me? Say, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me, for paying the price for my sins. I receive your forgiveness. I receive your grace. I believe you rose from the dead. 
and that you give me new life. I turn from my old ways and I turn to new life in you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for that, that those people who have prayed this prayer today, I pray that there would be a revelation that their sins really are gone and that today is a brand new life. They are a brand new creation. They have brand new spiritual DNA. The past as far as the east is from the west. Their sins are remembered no more and they are in right relationship with you. And today is day one of a brand new life. And Lord, for that, we are so thankful. We're so thankful. God, I pray for each and every one of us who maybe we're battling with this deep, deep issue today. We're wrestling with it today. Help us to be reminded of your forgiveness towards us so that we can offer forgiveness towards others. Lord, we wanna be free people. It was for freedom that you set us free. We, we wanna be people who, who walk in all that you have for us, not just a limited capacity. We break away from Satan's plan and we fully enter into your plan by faith right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand up and let's worship him one more time.